On May 9th of last year, Trixie Ling went for a walk in Vancouver. It was a beautiful Saturday afternoon, and Ling was heading home along a pathway shared by pedestrians and cyclists. The 37-year-old had her headphones on, and she was listening to a podcast discussing the recent rise in anti-Asian racism in the United States. The host talked about the importance of taking a stand, speaking out against racist attacks. And as Ling listened, someone caught her attention. I saw this guy, this white man, kind of coming toward me on the other side. The white man kind of approached me and said some, you know, sexual slur and and racial slur, and I ignored him. Um, and that's when he he spat on my face. I'm Jeff Semple, senior correspondent for Global News, and this is China Rising, Episode Ten: Racism. Ling is the founder and executive director of Flavors of Hope. The Vancouver nonprofit helps to support refugee women to cook and sell their cultural cuisine. What are we making today? This looks exciting.、Uh, I make mamut, just desserts. Cooking up dishes from all over the world. Lots of different like. Middle Eastern food, Latino food. I've also worked with women from、um, different regions in Africa, Tanzania, and so that has been such a such a gift to be able to taste all the different dishes when we gather together. Ling was born in Taiwan. When she was a kid, her family moved to Singapore, then the United States, before arriving in Canada when Ling was a teenager. So within a short amount of time in my childhood, I really have. Um, experience many different migration moves, and and really part of what drives my work is I've seen kind of what are some of the challenges and also opportunities、um, you know, of migration when you move to a new place,、um, and what it takes to really integrate and 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 feel that sense of belonging, and it's really it can be really challenging, especially when there's language barriers and cultural barriers. And so, a lot of what I do is really I want to help women be, you know, have agency, have power、um, to be able to navigate through the system and really create their own sense of belonging. Because I've been in Canada for men for majority of my life now, and and there's still that sense of like sometimes like you're not you're not from here, you know, it goes back to where you're from. You're not from here, or you're kind of othered. But that feeling of otherness, not belonging. Had never been so acute as that afternoon on the walking path. He turned around and he like spat on my face, and so that moment was really shocking. Obviously, both like racism, but also during COVID time, spinning on people,、um, and that kind of really aggressive, violent act. Ling says at first she didn't know how to respond, but she thought about that podcast that she'd just been listening to moments earlier. About the importance of standing up to anti-Asian racism, so Ling decided to report the incident to police, and then she shared her experience online. After I started speaking out on social media, a lot of people.、Um, this is where again I was encouraged because people start sharing their own stories with me. As painful as it was, it felt like this was the space for us to actually name what happened to us. So there was this sense of solidarity when people start sharing and like. 
those people are some of them are friends or some of them are people I know, but a lot of them are people I don't know start messaging me and told me, you know, thank you for sharing, you know, this is what happened to me, or I'm afraid for my parents who, you know, to, to walk out on the street because of these like fears of um, racist attack, which they're not, you know, they're, they're not irrational fears. It's like, it actually happens. During the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, 98 anti-Asian hate crimes were reported in Vancouver, an increase from the previous year of 717%. Before George Floyd was killed, this pandemic was infected with racism. Asian Canadians have been targeted, yelled at, spat at, and worse. People lashing out at them in the mistaken belief that somehow their Asian descent makes them responsible for the novel coronavirus. People of Asian descent across the country reported a dramatic surge in hate incidents, ranging from racist abuse to violent attacks. In Montreal, a young man was blinded by a group who attacked him with a military-grade pepper spray. In Toronto last year, police say the number of reported hate crimes doubled. But Vancouver topped the list. More anti-Asian hate crimes were reported in that city last year than in the 10 largest U.S. cities combined, earning Vancouver the dubious distinction as the anti-Asian hate crime capital of North America. Okay, Tracy, you ready to go? Okay, stand by. Prompter's in the right spot. And A7 in three, two, one, cue. Among the journalists who've been reporting on that recent surge in hate crimes is Tracy Tong. You're watching Global Toronto. This is Global News at 11. Thanks for being with us. I'm Tracy Tong. Scattered debris in here on Tracy is an award winning anchor at Global News in Toronto, and she's a colleague. Hey, Hey, Tracy. Hi. How you doing? I'm good. I caught up with her in her office for a few minutes before showtime. Tracy's parents are from Hong Kong. They actually were um, neighbors when they were kids and um, lived in the same apartment building. And uh, the two, that, so the two families are actually, they, they grew up together and knew each other. So. Super cute. <laughs> <laughs> like, I never knew that actually happened. I, I know, I, I know. It's like something out of a movie. Like any good love story, the couple got married moved to Canada as young adults to attend university, and live happily ever after. Their daughter Tracy was born and raised in Toronto. Growing up um, in Toronto, and uh, in, in Scarborough, and in Markham, they're, they're pretty diverse places. I never felt like I was cast aside because of my ethnicity, but there certainly have been comments made here and there, jokes, you know, directed towards me because of my race. Um, Ones that I've always just kind of laughed off and ignored and and kept going. But she says the events of the past couple of years have made her rethink that response. I think the pandemic, coupled with politics, really caused this to bubble over. Racism is not new. Anti-Asian racism is not new. The pandemic, though, highlighted a lot and brought a lot of ugly out in a lot of people, I think. And um, it was also made to feel okay by some politicians and people in the public eye. It's a disease, without question, has more names than any disease in history. I can name 
Kung flu. I can name 19 different versions of names. To be specific, COVID-19. That name gets further and further away from China as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. Donald Trump and a lot of his rhetoric fueled a lot of it and made people feel like it was okay to say certain hurtful things or do certain things out in public. And so you got a lot more of these brazen acts of either violence or hate, um, and it was less hidden than before. And in March of this year, those increasingly brazen acts of racism turned deadly. Tragic news, the deadly shootings in Atlanta, killing at least eight people. A suspect is in custody this morning. A 21-year-old gunman went on a shooting spree, targeting three spas in the Atlanta area, killing eight people, six of whom were Asian women. And police across the country are on alert this morning as well, fearing the attacks may have targeted the Asian community. But police did not classify the shooting as a hate crime, which would have automatically upgraded the case to federal charges. Because Georgia Police Captain Jay Baker explained, the gunman denied he was motivated by racism. The suspect did uh, take responsibility for the shootings. Um, he uh, said that early on, once we began the interviews with him, um, he claims that these, and as the chief said, we know this is still early, but he does claim that it was not racially motivated. He apparently has an issue, uh, what he considers a, a, a sex fiction, and sees these locations as something that allows him to, to, um, to go to these places, and, and it's a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate. He was pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope, and, um, and yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. Those comments from the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office sparked outrage. What happened with the Atlanta spa shootings? I think that's, that's really what got us. Um, on the one hand, there was the event, which was horrific. And then after that, it was almost like seeing somebody drive the knife in further when you heard those comments from the police department saying that they don't believe that it was motivated by race or by gender um, and that and the sympathization with the the white shooter saying he just had a really bad day you know that was um, I think that was a a turning point and, and a moment for us too um, because it felt like in that moment that those people who were killed at the spas their lives didn't matter as much Within days, Tracy, along with some of her colleagues at Global News, decided to produce a special series of stories called Hidden Hate, focusing on anti-Asian racism in Canada. And while a lot of the violent incidents were happening south of the border, there were a lot more smaller stories coming out from Canada as well. And there was a clear undercurrent that unless you were part of the community, people may not have been paying attention to. Um, but I was acutely aware of it, I think, because of my background and ethnicity, and um, I was perhaps paying attention to it more than the regular person would. I felt like it was a really important issue that, that we needed to highlight, um, because the more we looked into it, the more we realized that it's something that has existed for a long time, this notion this idea of anti-Asian racism, but it is something that has stayed kind of silent and flown under the radar for multiple reasons. That doesn't make it right, though. 
and, and now was the time to talk about it. So they put out a call to Canadians of Asian descent, asking them to record messages, sharing their stories and experiences with racism in Canada. Here's just a small sample of the response. Hi, I'm Cindy and I'm from Vancouver. I was driving and stopped at a stoplight. The driver behind me got out of his vehicle, ran up to mine, knocked on my window and started to yell at me for the way that I was driving and asked whether I had learned how to drive in China. He then got back into his car, swerved in front of me, and applied the brakes suddenly so that I'd run into him. And he did this several times. Hi, I'm Jennifer. I'm in Toronto. While out on the street, loading my trunk, somebody anonymously threw pebbles at me. There was no confrontation, no altercation. They just decided to throw pebbles at me. So for two years, I was a waitress and my manager, whenever he'd see me, he'd say ching ching chong like that. And at the time, I would just laugh along with him because I just really didn't know how to be with that kind of behavior. I called my dad after the Atlanta shootings and I cried. The first thing he said to me was, don't cry, be strong. And this is exactly what the Asian experience has been for many of us on North American soil. Whenever something bad happens, you're told not to show weakness because if you do, you'll become a target. If you do, you'll become the problem. So being an independent business owner, you never know what's going to walk through the door or who's going to walk through the door. And back in 2020, that happened. A woman came in and verbally abused me. She told me her views about the onset of the pandemic, about Wuhan, and about Asian people. She accused me of being the problem. And her ultimate solution was to get rid of us, to send us all home. I'm Canadian. I was born here. Besides hearing from ordinary citizens, a number of high-profile Canadians also stepped up to share their stories. I'm very fortunate in the approach to Canada that I take. Adrian Clarkson was the first visible minority and refugee to ever be appointed Governor General of Canada in 1999. And when Global News asked Canadians to share their stories and experiences with racism, she stepped up. When I came to Canada with my family as a refugee in 1942, there were no refugees in 1942. Clarkson was just a few years old when she arrived with her parents in Canada. She was born in Hong Kong in 1939, and a couple of years later, the Japanese invaded the then-British-controlled territory during the Second World War. Clarkson says some of her earliest memories are hiding in the basement during the fighting. We thought we were very settled in Hong Kong, and um, unfortunately, the war happened. We were thrown out. Fortunately, Clarkson's father was a wealthy businessman who worked for the Canadian government in Hong Kong. That meant his family was among the very few who were able to flee to Canada. For decades, the Canadian government had a policy of discrimination against Chinese immigrants. Back in 1885, the government introduced a hefty head tax of $50, later raised to $500, which was imposed on every Chinese person seeking entry into Canada. 
That despite the fact that Chinese laborers were badly needed to help build the Canadian Pacific Railway. Of the 9,000 railway workers, 6,500 were Chinese Canadians. They were employed to build the BC segment of the railway through the most challenging and dangerous terrain. Chinese workers were paid $1 a day, less than half as much as white workers. And in addition to being paid less, Chinese workers were also given the most dangerous tasks, such as handling explosives. Hundreds of Chinese Canadians died. All right, who wants to earn some danger pay? Boat fare for the wife. Their sacrifice recently inspired a Heritage Minute, a short film that depicts one Chinese worker who was assigned to line a tunnel with explosives. Now pour it in the hole gently, understand? Any little bump and that stuff will blow. Damn it, that's the third one we lost this month. Cochran, get another volunteer. But despite the risks, Chinese immigrants kept coming to Canada. In 1923, Canadian Parliament passed what was commonly referred to as the Chinese Exclusion Act. It largely restricted all Chinese immigration to Canada by narrowly defining the acceptable categories of Chinese immigrants. The Chinese Exclusion Act wasn't repealed until two decades later, in 1947. And during the years it was in force, fewer than 50 Chinese immigrants were allowed to come to Canada including Adrian Clarkson's family. We got on a Red Cross ship. We were taken to Canada because my father was a re relatively successful young businessman and he had done work with the Canadian Trade Commission. So when we got to Canada, we, had, we already had some people that we could get in contact with. Plus, my parents spoke very good English. When deciding where to live, the family refused to settle in British Columbia. Certain parts of the country became much more... Um, exclusionary than others, British Columbia is, and it was known in China. I remember my father always saying that even my grandfather knew that if you were going to Canada, you did not want to go to British Columbia. My father always said, we'll never move to British Columbia. They're just, they're very racist. And they've always been racist since the very, very beginning. And, um, and we just will not go to British Columbia. So the family settled instead in Ottawa. I grew up in Ottawa, and uh, there were not there were a few Chinese families. They had restaurants and laundries. They were the original Chinese immigrants, and um, we were the only people from Hong Kong. And they didn't know what Hong Kong was. Most Canadian, me and my my friends, didn't know what Hong Kong was. They'd heard that it had been defeated by the Japanese during the war as history, but they really didn't know what Hong Kong was or who, what a Hong Kong Chinese would be like or anything. In 1951, Clarkson remembers lining up with her classmates to see Princess Elizabeth, who was on a royal tour of Canada. So we come to Ottawa, Canada's capital city. A then 12-year-old Clarkson never imagined for a moment that she would see the soon-to-be Queen Elizabeth again 50 years later when she was appointed Her Majesty's representative to Canada as Governor-General. Clarkson arrived in Parliament Hill in a car. She left in a Landau as Canada's 26th Governor-General. Along the way, Clarkson also became a journalist, the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, a TV host, and film producer. We were treated as, as in a way, 
different, but very well. And yes, there was the occasional thing where people would say, chinky, chinky Chinaman to you. But my, fa my father said, you know, those are silly things that people do because they don't know any better. And uh, I always thought of it that way because nobody that we knew or liked or went to school with would ever have had that attitude towards us, nor did that ever show in any way. And, um, and so I feel very fortunate in the sense that I know that it's out there um, and I know that people suffer from it. And now I'm horrified by it uh, because I think it's completely, uh, it's part of a wave of hatred of the other. But those anti-Asian jokes that Clarkson and so many others have endured, left unchecked, sowed the seeds for the racist abuse we're seeing today. That's according to a guy who knows a few things about humor. Yo, ma! Uh. What's up? Netflix and that cheer? Sex. How you know that? Everybody know that. I don't know that. Paul Sunhyung Lee is a Korean-Canadian TV star, probably best known for playing a paw on Kim's Convenience and Captain Carson Teva in the hit Star Wars show, The Mandalorian. The 49-year-old recently told Global News host Liam Vu about the challenges he faced starting out in his career. I noticed the types of roles that I was going for or allowed to sort of audition for weren't necessarily the biggest roles in the world either. They were often... Um, I mean, you got to start somewhere when you're, when you're starting off, right? So there are actor roles, six lines or less, and, and you know, you would graduate up to, to principal roles, which is six lines or more, and then there's supporting, and then there's lead characters. But I never really got an opportunity to do that and, and, and sort of out of the gates audition for any of the really big parts because there simply weren't parts that I was being considered for I mean, because of my ethnicity. <laughs> Back in the 1950s and 60s, Hollywood hired white actors like Marlon Brando to play Asian caricatures, who were typically the punchline of a joke. You cannot go on or keep ringing my bell. You disturb me. You must have a key made. Media is so powerful in the sense that it really does shape a society. What's accepted, what's not accepted. Um, and for, for a generation, you had people who were raised to believe that Asians were the other, that it's okay to make fun of them, that they often are very odd or very funny. Uh, and it made it socially acceptable to laugh at an entire race or entire group of people um, because it was just a joke. Growing up and watching TV and, for example, watching like John Wayne playing Genghis Khan or Joel Grey uh, putting on Yellowface to play a Korean in uh, the movie Remo Williams, The Adventure Continues or The Adventure Begins. When I was a kid, I didn't, I didn't really notice it, right? I just, I just, it was just like, okay, that's an Asian part, but I didn't, it didn't really register me that it was non-Asians playing Asian roles. My parents were just so happy to see Korea represented in any way when we saw Remo Williams, right? And so when you grow up in, when you grow up in a society where you don't see yourself reflected on the screens, you don't really think much of it because you kind of go, well, yeah, it figures. And, but what you're taught subliminally is that your stories don't matter. Like your narrative isn't something that anybody be interested in. And you just sort of accept it, right? Like that's the that's thing and that's the way it always is. And you know, why, why question that? And it wasn't until I became an actor that I started to get frustrated because I, it was directly affecting my livelihood. It was like, well, why am I not allowed to audition for the best friend or for the lead? I mean, there's no mention of ethnicity in the character breakdown or this or that. But what I learned was when there was, when it said all open to all ethnicities, 
it meant non-white, all non-white. Um, but if it didn't have that, then it was the automatic default was white. That was in the 1990s. Fast forward to 2016, and Kim's Convenience became the first Canadian TV show with an all-Asian lead cast. The story centered on the fictional Toronto-based Kim family. Lee played Mr. Kim, or Apa, meaning father in Korean, along with his wife and their two grown children. Over five seasons, the show drew lots of laughs through the family's interactions with each other and also with their multicultural community. And the show was also lauded for offering something else, well-rounded Asian characters who have depth. If you can portray a family in a normal way, in a positive way, then that has, that has power, that has impact. They have the same frustrations, the same family dynamics, the same amount of love, the same problems that all these other families have. And when you show them on TV or in the movies or media or stories in general, you show that we are normal. We are people. We have a lot in common and that has a positive effect. And I think that's something that's we've been sort of steering away from and we really need to come back. But I think there's, a, there's an appetite for that. There's a craving for that kind of programming because we've seen edgy, divisive, sort of angry stories being told and, and this and that. And I think we just, the world needs a break and we want to come back, back over towards kindness and acceptance. Then the production company behind Kim's convenience declined to proceed with a sixth season. Some of the Asian cast members claimed that behind the scenes, they felt disenfranchised and alienated from the mostly white producers and writers and had issues with the plot lines, even calling some of the later storylines overtly racist. Lee was devastated to see the show canceled, but he's proud of its accomplishments. For Kim to do as well as it did and to open doors for other shows is, is a great accomplishment as well. Um, I think more and more I, I, we're showing that, that representation does matter and that there is an appetite for diverse stories as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my eldest wants to be an actor, which frightens me to death. But I don't know if he'd want to do that if he didn't see success stories out there. And I think we've gone a long way, but I think there's still quite a ways to go. And yet, despite that progress on screen, Liam Vu asked Lee what it's been like to watch the rise of anti-Asian attacks in Canada and the United States, including the spa shootings in Atlanta. It's heartbreaking. It's shocking. It's devastating. Uh, it makes you wonder why. Like, what, what, what did those women do? And what's more infuriating is the, the way that, you know, it's portrayed in the media. And then with certain authorities, like the, the police chief saying, well, the guy had a bad day and he snapped. Like it was nothing. That's, that's even more hurtful. It's the whole idea of you can perpetrate these kinds of violent acts on this community and no one will care except for that community. That's the other hurtful part of it too. It's like, there isn't the massive outrage. If, and you hate to say it, but like if it were somebody in the white community, if that had happened to the, in the white community, it would have been tremendous. Or if the shooter had been somebody who was, who was Asian, the, it would have been horrifying. Like the, it would have been completely different. Um, and that's what makes it hard. And it, it, it puts fear in your heart too. Let's admit it. I mean, you see things like that. You're afraid for your parents. Like, you're afraid, I'm afraid for my parents. I'm afraid for my kids. What's going to happen to them? I mean, basically what's, been, what's being shown is it's open season. You have permission 
to attack because you're, you've had a bad day or you're angry at a whole group of people because of COVID-19. I mean, my kids grew up in Canada. They had nothing to do with COVID-19, but they're still targets. And I think that's, that's the infuriating part of it. it. You feel so afraid and angry and confused and bewildered and impotent because it's like, well, what can you do? Trixie Ling, the Vancouver resident whom we met at the beginning of the episode, believes part of the answer lies in calling out racism each and every time you see it, whether you're the victim or a bystander. That day she was yelled at and spat on while walking home in Vancouver. Another older man of Asian descent was standing there witnessing the incident, but she says he did nothing. I think he was probably afraid and in shock himself. And so, you know, he, we, we kind of made eye contact, but he didn't really stop or ask me how I'm doing. And I think that incident also made me think a lot about, you know, there is for sure what, what happens when, you know, we, we experience directly racism, how, how do we react? Um, but also what happened when you're a bystander, when you, when you witness or you see someone who, um, who is a victim of racism? Um, how do we how do we have enough of the like the tools and knowledge um, and confidence to actually and the voice to really support um, and look after the people who have you know who have experienced racism, but to also speak up? Since she first posted about her experience on social media, Ling has spoken at community events, written articles, given media interviews and now has her own podcast, similar to the one she was listening to the day she was assaulted. And so that, I think that moment was a real catalyst um, moment for me, a real cha- a moment of change for me to like, knowing that this is not just happening to myself, but to many people to actually speak up. It's, and so that's what I've been doing. That has really driven me to use my anger and my rage to say no more. Ling says the onus is on everyone to say that together, no more. To stand up and call out acts of racism, whether they seem big or small, each and every time. And for Canadians, regardless of ethnicity or skin color, to stand on guard for each other. Thank you for joining me this week on China Rising. I'd like to take a moment to thank our many guests for sharing their stories with us, some at great personal risk, over these past 10 episodes. China Rising has been written and produced by me, Jeff Semple, with producers Kamiar Razavi and Dila Velezquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston, editing assistance from Stephanie D'Souza. Chris Dunner Duncombe is the director of podcasting and streaming. Sonia Verma is our editor-in-chief. You can help me share this podcast by telling a friend. And don't forget to rate and review China Rising on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at JeffSempleGN. And you can email me at jeff.semple at globalnews.ca. Thanks again for listening to this season of China Rising. And please keep a close eye on this space for future episodes in the months ahead. As these stories and others develop, we hope to see you back here again soon. Take care and talk soon.